know what you're willing to give up to get there and know where you draw that line for yourself because it is exhausting. It can be incredibly emotionally draining, but you have to be willing to power through it in every way that you can think of if you want to reach the end of that tunnel. Welcome everybody. My name is Haresh Singhani. This is Conversations with Haresh. We'll be talking to people of varied backgrounds, covering various topics. I'm very excited to be able to share these with you. The goal is to increase curiosity and empathy amongst all of us to help us grow professionally and personally at all levels. And of course, we also want to make sure that this is fun. So thank you again, and we'll look forward to having you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Conversations, another great episode. Today, we're speaking with Rashmi Joshi, a serial entrepreneur. She started very early as a teenager, started three plus companies, and also had a couple of exits. And she's on to her current adventure at Asha AI, which is focused on leveraging artificial intelligence for healthcare services for the senior population. Welcome, Rashmi, to Conversations. Thank you. Happy to be here. So how's life going for you? How's life in the big city? You know, it's been really exciting. I lived in the Silicon Valley for a number of years. I moved back to Seattle, my hometown, uh, during the pandemic. And I moved out to New York City just after the pandemic. So I've been here now for about two years. And it's been very exciting because a lot of people in the innovation space have actually moved out to New York post-pandemic. So it seems like there's this kind of thriving ecosystem of startup founders, of VCs, and just new ideas coming out of New York. So it's really exciting to tap into that. That's very interesting how maybe that some of the tech innovators are calling New York home now, as opposed to traditionally being a little bit more West Coast heavy, except for Boston and Research Triangle Park, which have always had some new technology innovators over there. I think basically there's been so many people who during the pandemic realized that a lot of the work that we're doing is virtual. So the uh, value of kind of bumping into people and being a part of that Silicon Valley ecosystem has really gone online. So people have learned that they don't actually physically have to be there anymore to have the same conversations take place. And I think, you know, Miami and New York are cities that are very built on that in-person connection and conversation. So it's just kind of a natural gravitas of people wanting to be in spaces where they can find that human connection once again in person. That makes sense. The pandemic has shifted everything or changed everything within the cities. How you, if you want to say, consume real estate or where you are is different, right? Downtowns are emptier, much, much emptier. Suburbs are much fuller during the day compared to what they used to be. I know we jumped in a little bit, but I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We had been planning this for a few weeks, but I'm so glad we could make the time today. As I was telling you a little bit earlier, so, you know, we'll start off with a little bit of introduction. We already got a little bit of what you might be doing now. Understand about some of the battle scars and how you used setbacks or failures as well <laughs> to create growth and eventual success. And then we'll look at balancing personal and the professional, a couple other things. So to start with, in terms of just your journey, kind of how you've traversed the personal and the professional to get to where you are, you know, feel free to start wherever you wish. Just give us an idea about Rashmi, where she is today and how she got there. You know, I started my first business when I was 16. Absolutely nothing to do with tech. It was a dance company. So I performed quite a bit. I choreographed. I taught dance, many different forms of dance. 
And I think one question that people oftentimes will ask me is, you know, how did you get into becoming a founder? Did you know that something that you wanted to do since the beginning? And the short answer is no, <laughs> it wasn't. I think for me, I've always found myself really diving in headfirst into wanting to either solve really interesting problems or just do something that I love. And so I'm one of those weird personality types that if I'm really excited about something, I'm really passionate about something, I have a hard time telling myself to stop or to kind of take it lightly. Very, very competitive. Grew up playing a lot of competitive team sports, grew up dancing professionally. And so that is just kind of a core part of my DNA. And so as I continued to grow and evolve through my career, I just had these opportunities to build really interesting novel solutions to difficult problems and also to do that in a way that really filled my passion bucket, if you will. And so really it was based on this love of learning, which I think has been something that has existed throughout everything that I've done to date is also something that ties together our current team at Asha. And I think everyone that I've typically worked with has built our culture, our relationships within the company based on that one cultural trait of a shared love of learning. So it's been a really exciting journey to date. Asha now is my fifth venture. Uh, my third is founder and CEO. Been fortunate over the years to have experienced a couple of exits. I've also experienced failure. And so it's been uh, interesting now as things are progressing with Asha, as the healthcare landscape has evolved so much post-pandemic as well as during the pandemic to be at the forefront of innovation within healthcare. It's just a really exciting space to be. For the benefit of the audience, the elevator pitch for Asha. So Asha is essentially a fully voice-enabled remote care platform. Think of us essentially as a virtual caregiver that helps care for your aging family members, those who have chronic conditions that they're managing or those with disabilities, and helps family caregivers have insight into how care is being managed, helps them to coordinate care with other members of the family as well as the care team, and essentially empower this entire patient population that has been so ignored with most of the healthcare tools and services that are on the market today because they're simply not tech savvy. So Asha is fully voice enabled. Every interface that we design is made specifically and you know, with those who have maybe problems with their vision or mobility or hearing loss in mind. So we're empowering that elderly demographic to have the same access to care and also access to technology that tech savvy folks like you and I do. And for family caregivers to have some more peace of mind and know exactly what's happening with the health of their loved ones. So what was the... Genesis, or what was the motivation to get you on this particular journey? You mentioned you've had several journeys as a founder. So Asha in particular is very near and dear to my heart. It's named after my grandmother, and it also means hope in Sanskrit, so it's quite fitting. It's based on, you know, the shared family experience of managing my grandmother's cancer journey. My grandmother about uh, four and a half, now five years ago, was diagnosed with colon cancer, and so she and my grandfather, who are both very old at this point, my grandpa is 92 years old. My grandpa is not that far behind him. You know, they live alone in India. And the closest person to them is my aunt, who's about a 13, 14 hour train ride away in India. And so, as you can imagine, it was just so difficult to help care for them and manage my grandmother's cancer treatment with none of us actually physically living nearby. 
So my family members and I found ourselves basically taking turns flying in and out of India. And I saw firsthand just how difficult that process can be as a family caregiver. And how also taxing that can be for the elderly person and the patient who is trying not to be obtrusive. You know, they don't want to feel like a burden. They want to have this quality of life that they can still maintain while they're going through a treatment like that and have access to, you know, the support of their loved ones as well as their friends. But there's really nothing out there that helps solve for that dynamic and those pain points. And so that's where ASHA was founded. It was built basically to help family caregivers care for their loved ones without needing to always be physically present and also help elderly patients have more control over how their care is being managed. So if you go back to other endeavors that you had started or you were a part of in very early stages, in ASHA, it sounds like there's a huge element as far as what motivated you to get started there of empathy because the family, your loved and dear ones or your grandmother was affected. Uh, and then I guess in your entire family was affected because you're like, okay, how do we give her the care that she needs? In general, and earlier you mentioned that, you know, when you're, when you get excited about something or when you feel passionate about something, it's hard to stop yourself or it's hard probably for anyone to stop you. And so in the other instances, what was the element of empathy or were it some of them where you didn't directly have empathy, but maybe it was a friend or a team member who got you excited? I'm curious, like to your earlier point about when you feel strongly about something, you go do it. So what are the things or factors that have made you feel that way about the things that you did in the past? And with Asha, I'm assuming it was empathy. Yeah, I think empathy is such a big part of being a founder. Because ultimately, you know, you have to be able to empathize with the people that you're building your product or service for. With my first business as a dancer, I just remember after my shows, there would be a handful of people who would come by and they were so excited and they were like, oh my God, that was amazing. You know, where can I learn to dance like that? Will you teach me? And after a while of having enough people asking me for lessons over the years, I just decided, you know, so what if I'm 16? I'm enjoying dance. I really enjoy dancing with people and it's a good opportunity for me to grow my skill set further. And so I started teaching dance. And it was so rewarding because being able to see someone have this outlet and also have this space where they can come to not just get physical exercise, but connect with themselves in a unique way that is high energy and exciting and fun is just a joy to watch. Some of the other things that I worked on in the past, you know, included Ivelisse, Ivelisse was essentially a smart wearable insert that you can pop from bag to bag that was audio command enabled. So let's say you want your wallet. All you would do is say the word wallet and the only pocket that would pop open is the one that corresponds to that word. So you're directed to it without having to think about where to look for things in your bag. And I uh, remember back in the day when people used to carry these massive giant black hole style totes right? Where women would be like digging around their toes and not be able to find what they're looking for. So that's such a pervasive problem that no one really had solved to date. That's what I wanted to focus on solving. In all of the companies that I've worked on in the past, especially also the ones that I've advised as well, there is definitely a core element of being able to empathize with who you're building for. And have you had instances where you had to rely on other people's empathy? So like, for example, you know, people that have worked, say, in a medical device company where they're building devices for heart surgeons. So most of the team would not have been a heart surgeon before, right? Or they may not have 
family members or, or spouses that might be heart surgeons. So sometimes they rely on other team members to bring that element of empathy. Have that been a case in your uh, journey? Definitely. I mean, I think any time that you're working on anything, it's really important to know what you don't know. And with Asha, this being my first foray into healthcare, I went in realizing, knowing really, that I really had quite a significant mountain of education to get myself over the hump of being dialed into how to build a solution in this space that would actually work based on the very nuanced way that our healthcare system is built and also based on the culture of how people consume healthcare in the US as well as abroad because all of those different micro cultural differences are very, very astounding in terms of the impact they have on how you're building a product or service for that space. And so for me, knowing how to actually get into the nitty gritty of that, I relied heavily on, you know, empathy from different kinds of players within the healthcare ecosystem. So we have a pretty robust team at ASHA that's very clinically focused. And the reason for that is that I don't have a clinical background. So I wanted to make sure that before we actually started building anything, that we really did our research, we really made sure that whatever solution we were proposing was one that fit into the pain points, not just of the patients and of family caregivers, but also fit into the pain points experienced by care team members, geriatricians, neurologists, all of these different players, professional caregivers who are involved and a big part of offering patient care. And so we have folks on board who, uh, we have a geriatrician on board, Dr. Harita Bankiretti, who's kind of our subject matter expert. We have David Gans, who has been a senior leader, MGMA, for I believe 35 plus years, essentially a subject matter expert on medical practice operations. Dr. Yan Chow, who previously was a pediatrician, but now for the last 25 years has been running healthcare innovation for companies like Kaiser and Amgen and Automation Anywhere. So we have kind of this really robust team of folks who really came together based on that shared love of learning. And we educated each other. A lot of the first initial, I would say, year to almost two years of building ASHA was centered on research. It was centered on coming together, talking through different kinds of hurdles and problems and pain points that we were trying to address and brainstorming on how different solutions could solve those pain points. And so getting those core team members to have empathy for what we're building and be able to offer a really unique lens into their slice of the healthcare pie was incredibly vital to where we are today. So how's how's it going? How's Asha doing? It's a very, very dynamic world, as I think we probably talked about a few weeks ago last time when we, you and I had a chance to catch up. The pandemic, of course, did a number on everything, and it probably created new opportunities that didn't exist before, and it eliminated a lot of the opportunities that existed before. And also, you know, technology is always shifting. And then geopolitics, Ukraine and beyond always has an impact on everything that happens around us. We were talking also about the latest kind of tech buzz boom around AI, generative AI, conversational AI, whatever the acronyms and words we want to put out there, which has had a huge effect on raising funds. <laughs> Not just that, actually, but the geopolitics piece, interest rates, and a bunch of other things, public markets not doing super well and that having an effect on maybe exits of the, you know, some of the mid-sized to larger fish and then downstream and so on. 
So I'm curious how, you know, Asha is doing in general as an entrepreneur and as a founding team. What are the the opportunities and headwinds you guys are facing? It's been very exciting. I mean, I think we're in this really unique niche within the market because all around us, I think people who have built digital healthcare solutions are having a difficult time figuring out how to balance solutions or pain points they focus on solving during the pandemic and then how that can evolve post-pandemic now that the culture is once again changing. But what's been really interesting for us is now you mentioned generative AI. I haven't really shared this with anyone to date, but I'd really love to share it now and kind of announce it for the first time. We're building at Asha is essentially AI-based technology, right? We're able to actually take through daily conversations with the patient, understand how their care is being managed and in real time offer different predictions and recommendations that can help prevent decline. And so generative AI is something that we have been working on behind the scenes for the last few weeks. It's actually a very fitting application of the technology for Asha, whereas I think there's a lot of buzz around that term these days. And I think it's the only part of the private market in terms of financing that's actually doing well versus the rest of the healthcare space. And so in light of us raising our seed round, which is currently open, we have decided to share with folks before we actually launch the product that we are building generative AI tools and services within Asha. And so for us, what that means, right? So obviously the biggest part of what we're building is that virtual caregiver experience. So leveraging generative AI for creating just a really human-like user interface for both patients as well as caregivers is made so much more seamless through generative AI so that we know we can use that to essentially connect with different kinds of services, do things like make calendar appointments automatically for the caregiver and easy information on what's happening with the health of the patient, you know, being able to do things like say, which transportation service is best for getting my mom from her home to her PCP for an in-office visit. So there's just a, a, a massive number of different kinds of services and use cases that really have been a part of our roadmap for the last one to two years already. So it's kind of interesting for us right now seeing what's happening in the marketplace when people are finally actually starting to talk about generative AI and tools like OpenAI have come out. It's been exciting. Some of the other things that we can do through generative AI with Asha is, you know, a lot of folks who are elderly or managing chronic conditions oftentimes have more than one condition they're managing, right? Because as you're getting older, you have compounding conditions that you're managing. You might have diabetes as well as heart disease. So a big part of why we built ASHA the way that we did was that we wanted to make sure that whatever condition you're managing as an elderly patient, that you actually have the tools and services that you need to manage any of those conditions successfully. Because you're just not going to go out there and use five different tools for managing five different conditions. It's not realistic. So we wanted to make sure that that's very seamless and easy to use and also highly customizable. But for people who have, let's say, 10 different medications, you know, that they're taking throughout the course of a single day and many different care providers who are prescribing those, it's not always easy to figure out what you take, how you're supposed to take it, which medications, you know, interfere with other ones. And oftentimes there's this huge lack of education for patients and family caregivers that can make such a big impact on long-term care. 
So being able to use generative AI by prioritizing your medications list, allowing you to basically see when to take certain medications and when not to, and how those can interfere with others. So that's another application that we are building at Okta. There's just a tremendous number of use cases that can be tackled through generative AI. For us, it makes a lot of sense to focus on that. And we're really excited actually now to kind of share that with the rest of our healthcare community, particularly as we're getting ready to uh, do our commercial launch as well. The other thing we have coming up that's very exciting is we are doing our first clinical study. And so we're very excited to be able to share the findings from that. Hopefully that'll put us in a position where we can say, yes, ASHA can actually improve outcomes for elderly folks, for the patients that we serve. You know, it's such an exciting time, sounds like, in your journey. You've been working on the product or the vision for multiple years, and you're kind of at the cusp of launching and driving adoption. And people, you know, you probably advised many startups, and I've advised startups, and then sometimes some of the founders that are newer to startup world, they get fixated on finding funding, finding investors, like how do I sell my idea? How do I pitch my idea? The biggest audience that you actually need to convince is you. Sometimes people skip that step, right? And they don't even realize it. And then sometimes even once you get the money, whether it's your own or you convince a few friends and family or others to invest in you, you do realize that you didn't really convince yourself. Because when you try to get that first customer, you realize what's what it'll take. And so you build the MVP, you got to position right, you got to get the trust right. But this is a very exciting time. I'm very happy for you guys. I'm so glad you're on the desirable side of the AI versus no AI. If you don't have AI right now and you're trying to get traction, it's a little bit difficult. It's a little bit difficult. I mean, healthcare in general is still not the worst vertical because there is lots of spend, lots of activity. Obviously, in the U.S., we've got a lot of challenges and opportunities in healthcare. My team at High Tech Advisors and myself, we do work with healthcare concerns, whether some of them are startups, and then we also work with some behemoths like the Gates Foundation, which isn't clinically a healthcare company, but it essentially almost are, right? <laughs> There's probably one question that we should talk about when it comes to fundraising, because I think, as you said, it's a topic that for a lot of folks has been top of mind right now because the private market has, with the exception of generative AI solutions, been fairly dead. Every single one of my founder friends, including those who are serial entrepreneurs and doing their you know, third or fourth company and have exits under their belt, are the most depressed and anxious that I've ever known them to be. What's really important at a time like this, when the market is not in your favor, is to find really creative opportunities for you to move forward. So there's not just a one formula that you have to follow as a founder to get funding. And I think that a lot of people labor under the delusion that because this is like how you're supposed to do things or the startup book says that you have to do things a certain way, that's really not true. So I think you have to think about what's going to power your business further, help you also obviously keep the lights on, making sure that you're closing your funding round is a big part of that. So you're not stressing out over just being able to stay alive through this time period. So one of the things that I would urge founders to do who are having a difficult time raising from venture funds right now, because I know a lot of venture funds are also holding on to their money. A lot of funds are not deploying capital despite their mandates. They're kind of trying to shake, see, you know, how things shake out post pandemic, which companies are going to stay alive 
and adapt to this new post-pandemic culture. One of the things that you can do is consider strategic capital. So think about what are some of the prospective customers that you're targeting who are larger companies and see if you know you can chat with someone who is a decision maker financially within those to see if there's interest for them to invest in your startup. You don't have to follow this model of, you know, getting angel funding in your initial round and then going for the VCs and then going to institutional capital. Most people will do that, but I think in times of stress, what's really important is being creative. The other thing you can do as a founder if you're having a hard time raising money is look at different partnership opportunities. So is there an opportunity for you to partner with a larger organization so that they take on a lot of that risk in terms of whatever it is that you're building or launching so that you bring down the budget value of what you have to spend in order to get you to that next step. So there's a number of ways to kind of slice the cake, if you will, but it's really important to not get stressed out and overwhelmed. Basically be able to take that step back and think about What are ways that you can get out and be a little bit more creative in terms of how you're problem solving for that space? And how's uh, acquiring clients? I don't know if you what exactly you have live today, if you have any uh, offerings that are live. As you mentioned, acquiring investors is especially challenging or can be unless you happen to be in that uh, very desirable, desirable quadrant or column of AI. How is it with acquiring clients so for us, we are still a free solu- uh, free service and solution. We have not commercialized yet. So largely for us, we are focused on acquiring enterprise customers. And the reason we're doing this clinical study is to be able to say to some of the larger organizations that we're targeting that we have hard data, clinical data, supporting the use of ASHA and connecting that with better outcomes. So I think knowing kind of what those hurdles are for your business, whether it's healthcare or otherwise, and being able to mitigate those risks as much as you can up front is really important. For us, you know, since we are enterprise-focused, relationship building has been a big part of building out our sales pipeline. And so that's something that we focus on very heavily in the beginning. And so now we're in a position where we already have those relationships. We've had those conversations up front. And now we're just waiting on the hard data from the study so that we can take that to those existing relationships and then leverage that into a paid interaction. For B2C, though, you know, I think the more creative you can be in terms of your social media approach for B2C is very, very handy these days. If you can hire, you know, someone who's probably, let's be honest, going to be a Gen Z who knows social media really well and is excited by the opportunity to build that online presence for you. I think that would be a good investment for any company that's in that consumer space. Ultimately, I think most people are very ready and willing to help. I mean, there have been times, probably 80% of the time, I've even reached out to people over LinkedIn, sent them a cold message, given like a very little bit of context, and it's flourished into either them joining our team or them being interested in Asha as a prospective acquirer or as a prospective customer. So there's been a, a number of interactions that have spun out of just cold emailing and cold reaching out to people. So I'd say don't hesitate to do that because you never know what it's going to turn into. Of course, of course. Yeah, it's kind of a cliche in sales. It's a numbers game, right? (laughs) It is surprising sometimes, especially people who may not have cold called before. People are quite generous and quite open. 
a lot more open than people might expect us to be. So that's a great reminder. One thing I would add to that, Harish, is that if you're thinking about, well, how do I reach out to this person? I would urge you to think from their shoes and consider from their shoes, what is something that they would have interest in? You got to sweeten the deal for them as well, because oftentimes if you're reaching out to people who are incredibly busy and pretty high up the totem pole, they're probably getting requests thrown their way left and right every day. So making sure that you are essentially creating a, a hook that has a value add for the person that you're trying to reach. Great reminder, uh, some very good pointers. Sometimes, again, to go back to the empathy element, we've all been pitched to also, whether it's on LinkedIn, Facebook or whatever our favorite platforms are, right? That's probably dating me. Most of them we don't respond to, but a small sliver we do. And then we kind of already have that experience. It's like, what picked my interest? Because that's what it's the same feeling you want to create on the targets that you're going after, right? So as I mentioned earlier, we could probably do a series of 10 episodes on many, many of these topics that we're just touching on, you're just touching on. One of the things I had mentioned a little bit earlier as we kind of rack up the time here, I wanted to go back to, which is setbacks and failures. You know, there's no growth without failures. There's no growth without setbacks, right? Just like in the physical world, you overload your muscles and then you, they microfracture and then they heal and that's how they grow bigger than they were before, right? And so life is kind of like that professionally speaking as well. And so do you have examples and also framework that you use to work with failures and how to leverage setbacks, etc., for growth going forward? One of the biggest weaknesses that I have as a founder that I have to constantly be mindful of myself is to not be overly perfectionistic. I have a tendency sometimes to be very nitpicky. I need everything to be perfect. All the uh, I's dotted, the T's crossed, everything has to look pristine. And sometimes you just don't have the time to make sure that that happens. You know, not letting that be a reason that you don't act that you don't take a really important decision. In a time when you're stressed out, you're anxious, you're not quite sure which way is up, it can be really easy to just freeze up and not do anything. But that's really like the worst thing that you can do as a founder is to not do anything. One of the things that I battled as a founder is always making sure that I'm doing something, I'm taking some kind of action, that I have some kind of a strategic plan in place to make sure that I'm mitigating the risks associated with the action that I'm taking. So making sure that you're doing that diligence, I think is very important. Do something to see if it works and not being afraid of failing. And that's such an easy thing for me to say. It's so much harder to actually do. I think a lot of founders are worried constantly, whether it's about making a really big decision that can impact your bottom line and can make or break your company, or even smaller things that you do throughout the process on you know, tools and services that you might purchase, even little things like that. Being able to try some things out but do it in a controlled setting where you're having done your research upfront and making sure that you understand the risks that you are getting yourself involved in, I think is really important. You know, in terms of failures, I've had a failed venture, as I mentioned in the past. That was my first technology venture, which I started uh, back in college. And at the time, I had about 15 or so different kinds of engineers that I was working with to build Evilise and the insert. And one thing I realized through that process was how important it is to be able to communicate effectively. 
as a founder, that's absolutely crucial because not only does that impact you know, your conversations with investors and with customers and with the team that you're building, but also it can make a huge, huge difference in terms of contracts that you sign, in terms of the legal language that you're using and making sure to set expectations accordingly. So one of the things that I learned through Ivalice was uh, you know, I didn't have conversations upfront with the people that I was working with in terms of what their role would look like, what kind of engagement I was expecting. And when it came time to actually roll up our sleeves and build the product, uh, everyone was very excited about the ideation phase, but not that willing to actually work on building the product. And so I was left in this position where I had to learn very quickly in two weeks how to code how to physically build a product that required significant mechanical engineering and electrical engineering. And I did it. And it was a very exciting two weeks of like 20 hours of work a day. But it was something that could have been very easily mitigated had I had those conversations up front. And so one of the things that I did with Asha, having learned from that, is I made sure that anyone that I was chatting with who I was looking to bring on board the team, that I was upfront with them in terms of what kind of engagement was involved making sure that they were comfortable making that investment. Because in the beginning, right, uh, you're working on a startup, everyone that you're working with is making an investment, including you. And so making sure that that investment is valuable both to you as well as to them, and that they're comfortable with the dynamic that you're setting in place and the process that you're going to follow to bring them on board, both from a paperwork legal standpoint, as well as just the cadence of how you're going to meet, how often you're going to speak, what the content is going to be like, and how involved they're going to be in actually building things and bringing them forward, I think is very important. At ASHA, almost everyone that I work with has been with me now since the very beginning. They've all invested anywhere from six to 12 months or often even more than that of their time just being a part of the initial brainstorming and diligence process of the company. What is the mix here of the people that are having other you know, sources of revenues versus working with you full time? So currently, I am the only full-time team member, but as we're raising our seed round, several team members will be joining on board full-time. We're a very democratic company at ASHA, and I think one of the things that we have that is so unique, I think, from other companies that I've been a part of and also other companies that I've observed and advised is that we have such an open team culture. I joke and I say that I get to work with my family. Asha is really more of a family. And that's such a core part of our company culture and our DNA is I get to work with all of my aunts and uncles, really. And so everyone that is working on board has you know, a say in terms of what we're doing, strategies that we have in place. And I'm very open in terms of knowing when to ask for help when I need it, and also being open-minded to the opinions of everyone who's involved, because part of what makes us as robust as we are is just the sheer talent and the knowledge that we have on board the team. Being open-minded is a huge asset as a founder. In the course of our work, we have corporate clients. We also have entrepreneurs that sometimes I personally advise or early stage teams that maybe are leveraging us for some engineering work, etc., it's very hard in many domains, but especially technical domains, to stay stay current, especially like in engineering domains. And so one of the classic juggles that a lot of engineering leaders do is how much of engineering work to do themselves versus managing the engineers that they have. 
right? And this also happens in sales. So where you have like a leader of sales team and then you have salespeople and then salespeople, they, they see the leader as a risk to take to a meeting because they're going to like contort the relationship, right? <laughs> if, because the salesperson who's going after these are relationship based sales usually where, you know, it's a multi week, multi month, multi year effort to try to go from zero to a closed deal. And then sometimes they're afraid to bring the sales leader in if they happen to be in town or then the late sales are like, oh, let's go talk to your client. And because that person may be out of practice. And then similarly, engineering wise, if you have an engineering leader, if they're coding, you know, sometimes it's seen as a badge of honor. I see it as a badge of risk. You can't be there. You can't be everywhere and you may not be up to speed on what's current, what's the latest and what's the best way to solve a certain problem. So it's very important to leverage the team members that you have with the whatever respective expertise areas there are. And you mentioned you did this two-week sprint, 20 hours a day kind of thing, which was a couple of companies ago. But do you have some things that you do to balance life or what are those things? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question, by the way, and one that will stand the test of time because it'll always be difficult to be a founder. It impacts almost everything that you do. It can be incredibly anxiety-ridden and isolating in some ways. I think for me, I've over the years kind of honed down my process for what works for me and what doesn't. And I'm very fortunate to have just a very strong support system. So I think if you're a founder who you know doesn't have that, it might be helpful to reach out to different, there's different organizations for founders. And it's always helpful, I think, to have a sounding board of other founders, whether they're in your industry or not, so that when you are coming across a really difficult time period, or you're trying to figure out uh, what to do about a certain hurdle, I think it's absolutely vital to be able to have someone that you can call and talk to. And I'm not talking about a therapist, right? It could be a performance coach. Sometimes you're looking for some emotional support, but oftentimes you're also looking for some insight on how different founders have approached different problems. I've had a issue in the past, a hurdle that I came across in terms of how to manage and offboard someone on the team who really wasn't pulling their weight. And I called, I think, five different uh, serial entrepreneur friends about how they would approach it. And all five of them had very different answers. You know, the funny thing is like what I ended up doing ultimately was also a different route to take. So it's helpful to have that social support and kind of that community that you can tap into in times of stress. I know for sure that I wouldn't be able to do what I do without having that social support. My family over the years has been incredibly supportive. My mom is like my therapist, performance coach, best friend, privacy compliance officer, technologist, accountant, all kind of rolled into one. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for having a team that I can rely on and I can actually be honest with. That's one other piece of advice I would give to founders is, you know, you can oftentimes be in this position where you can't really share that much of how stressed out you are or what's really going on with you, how you're feeling with the rest of your team. It's just been incredible to be able to break that wall down and be able to actually share with my team what's going on and how I'm feeling. You know, it doesn't work for every company, but for us, it has really brought us together. And I've had times where my team has pulled me up when I'm not feeling great. And that's something that I think very few founders 
really allow themselves to do is indulge and divulge what they're going through with the rest of their team. But being able to be direct and honest with the people that you're working with 20 hours a day, I think is just incredibly helpful. There's a number of tools I think that I've identified that have worked well for me over the years. So some other things include, you know, being able to manage your energy effectively. So knowing when you're really exhausted and you're just not able to get done that one thing that you really want to get done today and knowing when to walk away from that and work on something else. Because as a founder, there's always a thousand different things that you can do. If you're not able to focus on something that you really need to do, then, you know, take a break, walk away, work on something else for a while and ride your own energy waves. I think that's something I've learned to do over the last few years that has been just tremendously impactful because when I'm really focused on something, I can power through like four days of work within four hours. But if I am not focused on it, I'm not able to concentrate, then it's not useful to actually force myself to do it. So it's better to just, you know, switch it up and focus on doing something. The other thing I would suggest is I see a lot of founders going out there and doing different kinds of events. They participate in accelerator programs, which some of which can be really great. Others can be massive time wasters. That's a big topic for me personally, yeah. not, and not because of something I'm going through now, but in general, because a lot of people that I run into, they probably have more hopes than what those places can deliver. And it's not so much that those places aren't doing a good job per se. It's just that it's generally not a good fit in terms of the amount of energy you need to spend there versus the ROI you would get by taking that energy and just applying it to your business directly. Absolutely. You nailed it. When I see founders who are constantly at every startup event, constantly at different demo days in the hopes that they're going to meet someone magically one day and it's going to, and I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. It does. But part of our culture now post pandemic is still very much virtual. So what I look for, what's become my motto is every activity, everything that I focus my energies on, I'm looking for a return on my time. And so I'm focusing on activities that are giving me the maximum return with the minimum amount of effort spent. So a lot of that means that, you know, I don't go to a lot of startup events, a lot of conferences. Investors know this. So if they see, they can tell how you're spending your time. There are many investors who are like, hey, if I see this person at three different events, it's not a good sign, right? If you're a first time founder, you're kind of learning how to get out there. It can be very enticing to go to events like that, thinking that you're going to meet someone who's maybe going to be an influential player on your team. But it could be the case, but 90% of the time that you're spending getting there to that one person is probably not being spent well. It's not leading you there. What I would do is instead, you know, look at people who you want to meet, contact them online, and then figure out where they're going to be so that you can meet them in person. And it's just a more focused, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversation around your business. Don't be afraid to walk away if it's not a good fit rather than just like wasting time, right? Yep. yep. And people appreciate that too, right? I mean, I think that you do have to make a lot of choices as a founder that no one really tells you about before you start. I think media projects uh, entrepreneurship onto this pedestal and really highlights the successes of the like 0.001% of founders out there, right? But glaze over 
right? Glazes over all the difficult decisions that you have to make. And at the end of the day, you do have to know going in that this is going to largely impact the relationships that you have. It's going to impact every aspect of your life. And if you're doing it for the money, I will say that there are far easier ways to get money than being a founder. So you have to fall in love with the process for sure. Know what you're willing to give up to get there and know where you draw that line for yourself because it is exhausting. It can be incredibly emotionally draining, but you have to be willing to power through it in every way that you can think of if you want to reach the end of that tunnel. That's a great reminder again, because I'm not sure if it's an American America only phenomenon, but certainly in America, entrepreneurship is prized or looked upon very favorably from a status and stature perspective. But obviously, a lot more ideas and ventures don't make it as compared to the few that do. And then, of course, that make it big is even a fewer number. And actually, the data is out there. It's pretty transparent that entrepreneurs in general will make less money than non-entrepreneurs, especially if you're like in a highly lucrative field. So whether that's as a practicing clinic, you know, medical clinician or a practicing engineer or sometimes if you're a successful lawyer at a law firm, the odds of you going out and being successful as an entrepreneur, they're not zero. But statistically speaking, you'll make more money if you just stay at the law firm and keep you know, working for the next 30, 40 years than if you become an entrepreneur. Money is your motivator. There are probably better ways to, to go after that with the same amount of energy you're going to spend <laughs> than, than to jumping into being an entrepreneur. Then one of my favorite books is uh, Rich, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I don't know if you read that one. And I think that one is like, if somebody's like, okay, I want to maximize money, I'm like, okay, go read that book. You don't need to be an entrepreneur. Don't think about a startup right? <laughs> Just go read that book and do what it tells you to do if you want to be financially successful. And it, it kind of tells you to straddle both the sides, like don't give up your day job, but then start building something on the side, which is risk balanced or risk wise, it's in your favor. And you start building equity as opposed to jumping in with both feet. So in some ways, I guess we're crazy, irrational people being entrepreneurs, <laughs> right? You have to be a little bit um, because it is crazy to think that you can actually build this and survive and be human at the end of the day. Well, it's been great learning from you kind of where you're at. Uh, as I mentioned, I would give you an opportunity uh, if you want to put me on the spot with anything uh, that based on what we discussed today or whatever we might have discussed earlier. I know you and I haven't had an opportunity to work together in the past as much or we even haven't known each other for long. I think we were able to meet through some industry events, etc. And then I think by the time we started collaborating, you're in New York, which is fine. So now we can collaborate online. I think I described a little bit of what I do. I, I've been in Seattle for almost 40 years. I was a student here, high schooler, and then college, grad school, etc. And then I've been mostly in Seattle area. I worked in some of the usual suspects, including AT&T, Amazon, and then probably better part of 20 years in very small teams, including teams that I co-founded. Hatech Advisors, which is our team today, has you know, an engineering practice, a talent practice, and a management consulting practice. And we do work with a bunch of local area logos, but also a whole bunch of entrepreneurs. With entrepreneurs, when we start working, it's just through empathy. We don't even think about payment because usually cost of capital is so high for early stage entrepreneurs and there's so many variables. And so, but it's one of the things that I guess we do because of empathy and love uh, of the game. Yeah. So you're welcome to ask if you have any questions. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, what's the most exciting new innovation that you've come across? 
across recently? Generally, the AI, I mean, applications are endless. So about a month ago, my team did an event, which was a panel discussion on generative AI, and I happened to moderate it. And so I actually tried to become an expert. One of the things that I thought was interesting, and as I, I did a lot of research, but I listened to one of the Caltech professors give a talk who's been in AI for the last 40 years, how AI will actually allow us to do things that humans can't do. The scare talks or the people who are talking that AI is scary, you know, a lot of it has to do with replacing humans. So we'll displace people and their livelihoods. The other is runaway AI, which is you know, it becomes sentient, it has desire, and it has its own goals, and then you're, you're like in this soup of, you know, it doesn't care about humans, or, or, or we're in the way, and it cares to get rid of us, uh, which is worse than not caring about us, I suppose. But one example this professor gave I thought was very, very interesting was in oncology. So when you have humans looking at images of medical uh, situations, right, either uh, usually for diagnosis purposes, we can only pick up certain detail. An oncologist can only be trained with, say, 10,000 cases. You can train a generative AI, predictive AI beast or machine or algorithm on 10 million, 100 million, 500 million cases. So it can pick up things that humans won't. And so when this becomes mainstream, it'll feel like magic. It'll tell you things about medical diagnosis that like today, it would be pure magic. And then with, especially with medical images, what he was pointing out that was also interesting is that there are a lot of features in an image that our eye can't pick up. But if you magnify it, then your eye can pick it up. And then today, that's not happening generally. Except, I mean, of course, there are some microscope images that oncologists use. But in general, people just look at the images like x-rays with the naked eye, and they're not necessarily magnified significantly. So that's exciting. Another thing that's really exciting, I think, is the use of AI in education. There are two types of people that are at risk, two types of students. When people say, oh, we have these at-risk students, and as a school district, as a society, we have to take care of them. So I was talking to the CEO of Gimbox Learning, which happens to be a local education company, and you might have met her. Jessie Willie Wilson is the CEO. And she, this was probably 10 years ago, actually, she was also part of some event where we were talking. She enlightened or educated the audience on the fact that at-risk students doesn't necessarily mean just disadvantaged or people who come from troubled families and so on. It's actually smart kids that are at risk because they're not being challenged right. So what ends up happening is that they'll start getting into trouble or into kind of destructive paths because you're not able to give them the learning at the level that they need to keep them engaged. And so, and every society in the world is resource constrained when it comes to education. I think AI and then Sal Khan, who is huge, great vision at Khan Academy, right, which is, I think, world-class education for anyone, anywhere, for free. Right. That is their vision, right? Which is very noble and admirable. And so I think with AI, you could have that because everybody could have a personal tutor and it'll be at the level that you're at, right? If you're at third grade level, that's great. If you're at fifth grade level of math, that's great. It'll figure it out and it'll, it'll just teach you. So these two things are very exciting that, and there are many more, but these two come to mind. It's education and oncology. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a number of visual recognition technologies out there in radiation oncology. So we'll see what happens in the next few years. I think that'll start applying to other aspects of medical imaging as well, including fMRI technology. So very nice to chat with you, Harish. Um, any last questions for me? Yeah, so uh, I caught one quote that I'm going to use. Ride your 
own energy waves or ride your energy waves uh, for founders. Sorry, that's probably true for life. Anything else you want to give as parting gifts or parting thoughts, you know, that we should be mindful of or, or be reminded about? I would say listen to your gut because if you've been in and around this space for a while, I think all of us know at this point that like 99% of everything is bullshit. <laughs> that's just the nature of innovation. Um, anything that's new that you're trying to start, 99% of it is going to fail and maybe that 1% is going to succeed. So just don't be deterred from the setbacks. Just keep on going. Well, thank you, Rashmi. I'm so glad we could do this and I really appreciate your time. You know, we'll have to do it again, I'm sure. I, I'm so happy to hear about all the good things happening at Asha and we'll follow up offline to see how to help spread the word. I hope you have a great weekend. And again, thank you, Rashmi. Nice talking to you. Likewise. Also, really quickly share that if people want to reach us, they can find us online at asha.healthcare. And if they want to reach out to the company, you can also reach out to us at hello at ashaai.com. Thank you. Thank you, Harish.